Hi everyone, welcome to Voice of Evidence. This is Abby and I am here with Dr. Adam Sebi and Dr. Jay Lamarca and we will be discussing about is placebo effect real? Let's start with Dr. Sebi. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, yeah, the placebo effect is real. I mean, we all talk about the placebo effect constantly but I think a lot of us talk about it in some sort of imaginary way. And um, I'm here to talk about how it's actually real and, and important and how it's getting patients more leverage, um, more power over their own health by understanding what is the placebo effect because it's not a sugar pill. Um, it's really our beliefs and our thoughts. Can you maybe uh elaborate it in a much more um, deeper way so that way our listeners and audience are able to sort of understand pretty much as as an example from a from a doctor to a patient standpoint when you're basically giving a medications to your particular patients I mean is there a particular way to actually um, uh, plant something in their brain that that could uh, potentially elicit a response? Yes. Yeah, absolutely, there is. I think, if you, Adam, if we just roll back just a little bit uh, for the lay people of the world, um, placebo effect in essence is really when you have a expected positive outcome and you elicit that outcome without adding anything, as in a drug or some sort of uh, external stimulus other than, let's say, a suggestion. So if you want to tell your stories about the patients you interact with and your, your uh, deep experience with uh, veterans, uh, that would probably be super helpful at this point. And to kind of address what you were saying, Abby, um, a research, so researchers back in the 1950s were studying this. This is really when the placebo effect became part of the mainstay of uh, figuring out what was the effect of the active drug versus what was the effect that kind of the person felt. And one of these researchers said that the placebo effect is the most commonly used class of drugs because it's involved in all treatments. Whether you intend to or not, um, all treatments are the result of what the actual drug does or the medical treatment plus whatever we consider this placebo effect. Um, we're going to, to what you were bringing up so I trained in the uh, West Los Angeles VA and uh, for the most part we see a lot of World War II veterans based on this era, a little bit of Iraq, very few World War II, mostly Vietnam era veterans. And what I saw very clear at the, at the beginning was that the World War II veterans were that much better on a whole range of um, health factors. So um, my particular specialty is PM&R, physical medicine and rehabilitation. So I tend to see a lot of like soft tissue joint injuries. And this one particular World War II veteran came in, 80, upper 80s, maybe even 90s, uh, was talking about how um, he has knee pain and he has to take pain medications um, every time he plays basketball. So we're having this conversation like, okay, how much do you take, what are you taking? And I'm, running through, is he on like oxycodone, is he on morphine? And he says, I, I pop a couple of Tylenols when I go play basketball. Amazing. And I look at his x-rays and you can't see the joint space between the bones. It's, it's literally bone on bone. Um, juxtapose that with 
Another veteran, this time maybe 30 years younger, Vietnam era veteran, he's coming in in a wheelchair. And I'm already, I've learned now the World War II veteran, I gotta look up the x-rays and see how all that stuff looks and the, and the imaging. And I'm finding it hard pressed to figure out why he's in a wheelchair. His x-rays are essentially normal. His MRI shows maybe a small tear in the medial meniscus, mm -hmm. basically the cartilage between the bones. And yet he's disabled, hasn't worked for years, um, takes hydrocodone, heavy opioids, um, and is still in pain and discomfort. So what's going on here? The objective is very different between these two. And one would say that we would expect when things are worse objectively, that they, you would need more treatment. But in fact, we find the opposite occurring. And that's when I started to think, there's a lot more going on here than what we can objectively measure with imaging studies or even with lab studies. And it's, it's people's beliefs. It's their perception on reality that truly drive their health. So right now we are pretty, we are all suffering for uh, this craziness of COVID. What do you think would be the best educational tool that um, you can provide or what you can, what, what kind of advice do you think you would basically give out to, to, to our listeners and audience um, um, when it comes to, to this type of approach? I mean, if they know that it's a placebo effect, is it as effective? Is, I think, you know, what what would be the best way? What would be the approach? On, there is just so chaos out there because the news is telling us how many people dies, but they're really not educating us a lot on how to live. So, um, I think this is such a great topic to actually express. What do you think would be, uh, how do we apply this into our uh, real beliefs, uh, our real life? Like, because we are what we, um, I'm sorry, I'm running out of words because I have so much to say when it comes to COVID. It's just, it's just a lot. You mean, so, we, you mean to say we manifest what we believe? And correct, think, right? yeah. So. Yeah, okay, so. You bring up a lot of a lot of things, and yeah. geez, do we do we have enough time to go over all that? But uh, yeah, one one thing that seems pretty clear, and I think you you brought it up, was that we tell a lot of people what they should not be doing there during this time. You shouldn't be, um, you know, uh, talking very close to one another. Um, you shouldn't be, uh, you know, all, all these things we should not be doing. But there's not a lot of talk about what we should be doing, and you can think of this kind of like more like as a microcosm of just Western civilization when it comes to health, we focus a lot on our diseases, but we don't focus that much on prevention of those diseases. Um, a little bit, but you can clearly see that most of our um, thinking is about how do we prevent getting high blood pressure, heart attacks, diabetes, and not about how do I just maybe run up this tree, you know, or how do I have the strength to hold my breath for five minutes underwater. We, we just don't think about it like that. that. That seems foreign. That's like what athletes are doing only. But regular people, no, we should be focused on preventing. Um, we should be focused on avoiding these diseases. So going back to Corona, um, I feel that it's one of the more interesting topics to talk about in this realm specifically. So if we were to basically say placebo effect is 
really more so to do with people's emotions and thoughts and feelings. Um, how would that even apply to coronavirus or COVID-19? And the interesting thing is that there have been studies done where they looked at people's stress levels as it relates to other sort of viruses and including older versions of the coronavirus. So this is the new coronavirus, COVID-19, but there's older versions of coronavirus. Correct. And those older versions of coronavirus would give you similar symptoms, cold-like symptoms, and they found that people who indicated they had less stress at baseline actually had less symptoms and less levels of virus in their bloodstream. So in a sense, even though there's no real pill for COVID right now, um, there is the concept of a chill pill. So you and just have to chillax, right? To some degree. I mean, it it's, can only benefit you. Yeah. But when we keep talking about the death rate, the exposure rate, the stay at home, what does that do? That clearly is not giving me a chill pill. That That's giving me a, a pill that's tough to swallow. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a flip side to placebo, and that's called nocebo. And so if we have the placebo effect, which is dealing with a positive outcome and, and our expectations of that, the flip side of that, the counter um, of it, is the nocebo effect, which is a negative outcome. So exactly what we're just speaking about with respect to death, dying, suffering, worst case scenario, losing your sense of taste and smell, being hospitalized, uh, ventilator possibilities, um, not being able to see your loved ones, all the things that we are hearing about, which are all true, right? These are all true for those people that have the disorder in that respect. The, the ones who don't have that, um, I would wager dollars to donuts that they're not really focusing on the negative. They're yeah. trying to get through it or ignore it. Right. So there was a study that was done a very long time ago when I was in med school, and that was how do you treat lower back pain? And there were many possibilities, right? You could do nothing. You could use hot packs. You could take ibuprofen. You could be, you could stay in bed for a week, or you could pop a couple of ibuprofen and go back to work. And then they measured the outcomes with all these different groups. And the ones that took a couple of ibuprofen and went back to work, they all recovered faster. In fact, their sense of well-being was inherently better and it was observable. And so that tells us a lot. That says sometimes ignoring the problem and moving on and doing something else is often very good therapy. Now, if you are in a, in a position where you have a debilitating disorder, that wouldn't be smart. You still have to address it, right? So maybe you're gonna listen to your doctor, you're gonna follow the steps, but you're also gonna say to yourself, do I want to remain sick? Do I want to remain suffering? Do I want to remain a victim? Or do I want to take control of my problems and move on? Those people that do that always have better outcomes. Absolutely. And so the same is true for, the, for COVID, right? So we can't predict what the viral load is going to be and how it's going to be expressed in each person. That's outside of all of the risk factors and comorbidities and things like that and age. There's not much more we can, we can do except observe, right? So, but those people who have been infected and didn't even realize they were infected and recovered, that tells you a lot. It tells you first and foremost that perhaps they had the genetics that said, I'm, I'm actually pretty strong and I can, I can fight this virus in, in a way that maybe the person next to me can't. Which then tells us, so we should observe all of the precautions, wear a mask, stay six feet when, when you can, don't go into big gatherings, all the rest of that kind of stuff, and don't be foolish. But going back to the very beginning of this conversation, when you said, what can, we, what can we do? And he was mentioning all the things that we can do that we think other people are doing because they're in a special class like athletes. Right. 
Well, those are things that every one of us should be doing anyway. Why wouldn't you want to work on your body? Even though we are in a circumstance where we're supposed to be in a, a form of lockdown or other, why wouldn't we still want to maintain our health? Why wouldn't we still want to eat properly? Why wouldn't we want to still do things that boost everything that is good in our life, including staying in contact with others and not being isolated in, in the sense that we have technology, we have computers, we have phones, we have the ability to talk to anybody anywhere in the world for free. Right. There is no reason to feel isolated, mm -hmm. none whatsoever. If you choose to feel isolated, well, you're gonna you're gonna suffer probably from things like depression. Yeah. Yeah, because the world is really our neighbors nowadays. I mean, with the power of technology, we are able to communicate to everyone. Anyone and everyone is reachable. So, um, so I mean, there's definitely a lot that I don't understand when it comes to the COVID situation. So. I think the best way to do is to really uh, figure out what works for you better. Whether it's placebo effect, being just surrounded with your, with your friends or family, but that, that's not even the case at this point because the we're about to start another lockdown again. So to your opinion, what do you think would be the best way to handle this COVID-19? So the COVID-19 is the unexpected, is the unknown. And you could say that for a lot of things. Um, when you're going through your health, there's a lot of unknowns. There are diseases that people might have um, that there's not much known about, or there's just, how do you know how you're gonna respond to this particular treatment? Health has a lot to do with genetics, like you brought up. Um, our baseline uh, level of activity, our nutrition, and just dumb luck. But if there's another aspect that we can add on top of it, which is sort of the power of positivity um, or hope that things will turn out the right way and that you do kind of accept what you have, your back pain perhaps, mm -hmm. but you decide to accept it and go along, you treat it, but you also go ahead in life and you don't take it necessarily a big pause or you don't despair. Um, I think that puts patients further in the driver's seat. And what I think we should do is we should ask more from our patients rather than have them depend so much on our treatments. Tell them, no, look, if, and it's difficult to say, and I actually think that the more difficult part of this whole conversation that we're having is having it with people who have those issues. And I, it, it can be come off as ins completely insensitive to kind of bring up these topics like, hey, I think you just need to lighten up. Um, yeah. But it's, I think we need a way to talk about it. And, and that's why I feel like we, we have to sort of divorce ourselves from this term placebo effect and talk about what it is, which is, it's really the synchronicity of our psychobiology. It's, it's basically when our psych, psych is connecting with our biology our, our positive thoughts are now heading into positive expression of those thoughts literally in terms of neurotransmitter release hormone release and symptomatically feeling better um it's just one more step in the right direction but to go back to the original point i think um people have to do what they feel is comfortable um to deal with the, the coronavirus based on their own health situation, but also try to maintain a, a life worth living. Assuming that this might not change anytime soon. I, I heard someone talking um, on the LA Times uh, sort of podcast yesterday that they were gonna 
basically say the next two years are ruined and I'm just going to have to deal with the next two years as being uh, alone. I'm going to have to be alone and life is just going to be so different. It's and horrible. We have to adapt to what we have yeah. now and in all situations, not just coronavirus, but if you have cancer or whatever. And that will put you in the first step towards getting towards betterment or health or health. I agree totally. And to echo what you just said, the, the mindset is one of, uh, as far as my opinion goes, um, this is our new normal. It doesn't matter what was yesterday. Yesterday's gone. Tomorrow's not here yet. We only have today, right? Right. But if we accept that this is our new normal and we manage our life accordingly, then our expectations are set correctly. And the idea that we will be overwhelmingly let down is absent. If you set yourself up for failure, that's exactly what's going to happen. There's no myths about this, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. If you tell yourself you're going to lose, you're going to fail, yeah, you are. So what do you want to do? Do you want to be unhappy? Or would you rather be happy and this is how we live today? You know, look, when this whole thing started, I I love social gatherings. I, I love to be in, in uh, dinners with 25 people. And I enjoy all the conversations and being able to move from place to place to place and get the multi-generational conversations. But obviously that wasn't gonna happen. So then it came to my two best friends and I, we all got brand new bikes and we started riding bikes because that was one way of maintaining exercise. We couldn't go to gyms anymore. Now I wasn't unhappy about it. Actually, I was kind of happy because this time I got to see trees and ocean and, and everything that was outdoors that I normally never see except in the inside of my car. Right. So it wasn't such a bad deal, honestly. I, I was not disappointed. Now granted, you know, they're the lifting weights and all that kind of stuff and that, that social aspect of going to the gym and, you know, observing beautiful people all over the place, that that was absent for sure, you know, darn. Anyway, so no more yoga and that was, I was bummed out about that too. But anyway, so what then happened was, what do you do when you're gonna go eat, right? You're either gonna, we cook at home more often, which is also kind of great, and the other thing that we did was uh, we would have tailgate picnics and it wasn't horrible. I ended up buying this thing that, that looks like a gun case that turns into a picnic table with a little <laughs> umbrella and everything. And you're in a parking lot somewhere and you're having a sandwich and it's like, not bad. I mean, it was... I want to see this case. Okay, I'll show you. It's in the car. <laughs> it's great. Um, I, I think a lot of people have kind of claimed 2020 is the worst year ever. Yeah. Um, and it can means, be fun. It can be fun means. to talk about yeah. it that way. But truthfully, it's, I mean, I could see how circumstances for every person might have a circumstance where it is the worst year, but collectively, could we say this is the worst year ever? I don't think so. No, for sure, not. it's definitely not for me. And it sounds like we're all adapting to the situation. And like you were saying, you discovered the outdoors life. And similarly myself, I never owned a pair of hiking shoes until this year. Uh, wow. Never went on a full day hike you know, and almost died um, <laughs> because I had never hiked before. But because of this strange circumstance, I've been able to enjoy different things, but the same things as before have, have changed a little bit, but definitely not, we can't say this is the worst year ever. What happens when it really is the worst year ever? Right? Yeah? I mean, for me, the definition of the worst thing would be scarcity, right? Yeah. What's scarce besides toilet paper? Well, yeah. And that was artificial anyway. Speaking that was a bunch of, of people hoarding. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I, I could never like, understand that. Meat, all. dairy, fruits, vegetables, all that never went out of, out of supply. 
I mean, yeah. I never wanted for anything. I'm, in fact, I'm fat. <laughs> I've gained weight since the COVID diet has been great for me. How much weight did you gain? Oh, at least 15 pounds. At least. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Whatever you guys think you lost, I found it. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> Thanksgiving coming up so, right now. Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah. What if what if people knows that it's placebo effect? What do you what do you think? Yeah. So I, th I think that's um, now we're talking about current day. Uh, right. What are they studying current day? So they're actually doing these trials um, called open placebo trials, mm -hmm. where they are actively telling people, "Hey, you're taking a placebo. It's a sugar pill." But there is a strong connection between the mind and the body. So keep taking that pill, no matter what, for two or three weeks, and let's see how it happens. And they found for different, you know, it's still kind of early in the uh, you know stages, but uh, they tested people with um, irritable bowel syndrome, irritable bowel syndrome (IBS), and those people started feeling better after three weeks. They compared it with the group that was just continuing the normal treatments; they felt better. And then you know. Do you know it's placebo? Yeah, we know it's placebo, but I don't know, it's just having less symptoms. They did it with chronic low back pain too. The people with low back pain started feeling better yeah. after three weeks. Now, is this, you know, were they following them for like a year later? No, those studies haven't been done yet. But the fact that people knowingly are being told, hey, this is a sugar pill, um, just kind of shows you that there's something about that interaction between maybe medical provider, patient, being involved in a group, being told that, hey, there is some effect, um, mind-body connection, that generally just people are happier um, and symptomatically better. Now, are they objectively different? I think that's the main thing. But does it matter if you are objectively the same, but subjectively better? If I'm 90 years old, I'm 90 years old, right? right? I can't change that reality. Maybe, you know, hopefully, right, with the medications and the treatments, maybe there is something that is disease modifying or age modifying. But if I'm gonna be 90, I would wanna be the best 90 that I can be. Which, if you're telling me it's just this mind-body connection, well, let me invest in that. So there's a few things that I think we, we sort of grazed over with respect to the placebo effect and how it has been studied and what it was used for initially. And you touched on the fact that initially it was used primarily to uh, evaluate the efficacy of some molecule, some drug. And basically what they would do is they would have two sets of, of uh, patients in a double blind and they would give them, one got the actual active molecule and one got the inert nothing. And they were, they were told nothing, and the, the scientists, nor they didn't know either. It was all in a, basically in hidden envelopes. Who was who? And then you evaluate at the end how well did it work, and you compare the placebo with it, which should have nothing. That should be your your baseline null hypothesis versus the active ingredient, which you would like it to be effective, but you're assuming it isn't. And then this is you make the comparison. Well. That was the standard. It was the gold standard forever for drugs. Now, with the advent of people like um, Dr. Sabi, you collect information about how lots of different things affect people and how they improve the conditions that they have. And then what they found out was just because some drug had a certain effect didn't necessarily mean that it was actually that efficacious because the placebo effect is real even in them. Right. And so this is something you have to consider. 
Because as he mentioned, you can give somebody a drug that is sugar. It is nothing. It could, it could be a completely inert talc, nothing. And tell them, as he mentioned, just take it and let's see what happens. It's gonna help. Believe it or not, it does. Yeah, because when you Power believe it- Power of the mind. Exactly, it's brain chemistry. Exactly, and so brain communicates with the rest of the body and the rest of the body listens. And so it's very important why you tell yourself good things as well, right. because the rest of the body listens. Anyway, so now they realize that that effect has to be considered, that lots and lots of drugs that may seem like miracle drugs aren't. And the main reason that they're working is because the patients want them to. There was an interesting story um, just a few years back about deep brain stimulators for Parkinson's patients. Mm. And um, in this story, National Geographic, they talked about this one individual who was in a study and he got the deep brain stimulator. His Parkinsonism completely went away. He was able to walk and enjoy life. And all these things, all these things that he'd been suffering through for nine years with this Parkinson's diagnosis completely disappeared. And then they told him a few months later, um, you actually didn't get the deep brain stimulator. Wow. And he said, gotcha. <laughs> I, I don't care. I feel great. Wasn't bothered at all. So it, it's just, and it, it's not everyone responds to this sort of effect. There are some people who are quote responders and there are people who are not. Um, it's to say that in addition to investigating these different treatments, we should also be pushing this line as a form of treatment itself, which is this belief or this Building. synchronicity of our psychobiology. Um, if anyone has a good term, by the way, for how we can, you know, replace placebo effect, I am more than open because I feel that we talk about placebo, we talk about imaginary things, um, things that are not real. Um, but when we talk about mind-body connection, psychobiology, we're talking about real things. What puzzles me from, the, I've been in the healthcare space for about 11 years now. So if this is a, a, what what I don't understand is why don't people know more about this? So, okay. What's really interesting is when we talk about, and I think you brought up an example earlier um, as it relates to business or sports, something of that sort. We always talk about in sports and business, you can do anything you put your mind to. Right. And we believe it. Yeah. We, we truly believe, you know, if you put limitations, if you think you're not gonna make that basketball shot, um, you're just not gonna make it, you know? At least you have a better chance, believing you will. For some reason in medicine, we haven't gotten to that point where we can have that conversation and it not feel like some sort of insult. Because you could certainly have the opposite sort of situation where people start to blame um, your the fact that someone has a disease based on their mindset, which is something that I wanna make sure we make that distinction. People don't necessarily get breast cancer because they're negative. And they've actually done studies to kind of look at this. Do certain personality types get cancer more than others? So far, no, it hasn't been shown that way. It's, it's just an added layer. Just the same way that nutrition, you might not be able to heal everything with nutrition or exercise, it's just an added layer. So I think we have to sort of thread the needle when we talk about it. Because I think we all kind of believe truly that like positivity would give you better outcomes. We just don't know, at least as a doctor, we don't really know how to talk with our patients in that sense, and then not have our patients flip out. We just don't have the terminology. And I think placebo is kind of the wrong terminology. That's like where we're gonna go down the path of 
Are you telling me that I should just imagine improvement? So there's definitely something missing that I would say Western medicine definitely has failed in, and that is uh, this concept of uh, who's at fault or is a patient a disease? Are they identified as that disease or are they identified as a person? And also, why does everybody expect the pill to be the magic bullet? The truth is that it uh, doesn't matter how good any physician is. It doesn't matter how well they've mastered their craft. It's a give and take situation with the patient and the, and the patient and the doctor have to work in, in synergy, 100%. And if they don't, the outcomes will not necessarily be good. And a lot of patients uh, go to doctors thinking that this person is, is the end all be all. They know everything. That's completely false. Nobody knows everything. Right. Um, there are plenty of people that know a lot, but everything is ridiculous. The patient needs to own their problems. They need to say, this is mine and I need to address it and I am going to come up with a plan. It needs to be very methodical. Not everybody is methodical. Not everybody is smart. Right. It takes some help, but everybody can participate. And so good doctors recognize what the capabilities of their patients are and offer them solutions in the way that they believe are palatable, right? You don't dump an encyclopedia in someone's lap and expect them to don't digest worry. it exactly yeah. in one sitting. It's not going to happen. You have to give them, you know, spoonfuls at a time, which is all fine because you, you should be able to do that. You're a human being. You should treat the patient in front of you as though they are a loved one. They are a kind and good person, even if they treat you like crap, because that's usually how it is. Patients are upset. They feel pain. They give it right back to you. This is, yeah. this is just the nature of the business. And if that's not the kind of business you want to be into, then, you know, maybe you pick something else. It's not a crime. Basically, what you're telling me is this is not being not enforced. Um, what would be the right word? Is it maybe communicated. It's not communicated in the healthcare space when or, or at school. Um, is, is Definitely that not school. No, <laughs> you're not in school. That's you learn that. So nobody's teaching to basically no. what are the art and the language to to actually no. to express. That's what mentors are for. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's the first part is education and giving that to whoever uh, wants to obtain that. Of, of course, more research has to come out. Um, com um, you know, research will continue to come out, which hopefully should reinforce that there are potential power but there's also limits to it you know it's not like I'm, I'm going to outthink my you know my disease and completely get rid of it overnight because I meditated right you know, really hard right um, and then having those discussions with patients and maybe with family members to be honest because I don't think it has to come from a doctor um, I think having discussions with your family members, for example, who maybe you know have some issues, but try also being sensitive to the fact that you don't have their same problem. Um, and I think, again, most people would agree, it's just starting to open up those lines of communication and having that way of talking about, well, you know, we talked about your nutrition, we talked about your exercise, now let's talk about your attitude. As doctors, we are kind of getting more into this space where we're giving patients the knowledge so that they can choose. And I think what we do is we provide patients the knowledge and what anyone can do, even with family, you provide them with the knowledge and you let that person decide if that is something they want or feel that they need to do. So really what you're telling me is uh, 
you can only suggest pretty much. You can plant the seed. Yeah, plant you the make seed. recommendations. Um, you touch on a topic that actually is something near and dear to me, and, and that is even as a patient, as a physician who is a patient and goes to see another physician, there are uh, things that you bring to the examining room. And as a layperson, we are all fairly skilled at being able to jump on Google and read about whatever it is that we think we might have, or do a search and we're on WebMD or whatever it may be, or if you're lucky enough to have Medscape. Anyway, so uh, what I was getting at was prior to your uh, your visit with your doctor, you go and you start doing your research. And it's, and it's very common. We have at our fingertips uh, these resources. But I would caution patients to reserve that information until after your physician has had a chance to properly take a history and physical and evaluate you. Don't plant seeds in, in their heads either because physicians are humans too. And it's very easy to steer. It's I could steer anybody in any direction I wanted to and I don't think I'm that great at it. I just know that if you keep saying something, then people will kind of think, well, it's a possibility. And if you keep thinking it's a possibility, it's like looking at a multiple choice on a test. And you're like, maybe, I mean, in some weird dimension, it could be true. You know, black could be red, you know, but it's not. So my point is, um, allow yourself to do your research, allow yourself to get the ideas, but don't make any conclusions. Go to the professional, let the professional give you their impression, and then maybe say, hey, by the way, I was reading on whatever website and I found this information. Do you think that's relevant? And if they tell you no, I would say in most situations, you can count that he's telling you or she's telling you the truth. Yeah. So it's not really a gotcha. It's more of a maybe I was just thinking, you know, if you come with that approach, you don't change someone, you don't. And you're you're doing that in a way that I think it's it's dangerous. I don't uh, think that we should change someone. I think we can only suggest and we can, uh, like you said, plant seed and, you know, it's really about taking control of your health. Definitely. All right, so thank you very much for being here and I look forward for the next time. Thanks for having us. Thank you very right. much.